The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, brought to you by Narcanon Suncoast. Jason, hello. Joni, we're here. Here we are again, week after week, coming to everybody around the world. Exactly. With a message of what to do about addiction. Exactly. Week 83, I think. I think this is week 83. It's unbelievable. You know, it's... Week 82, sorry. It's week 82? Yeah. Okay. It's uh, kind of. I think it's unbelievable what we've created here with uh, the following that's starting to pick up. You know, after we uh, announced that I was going to do that survival guide, I had a ton of people email in, and so everyone that did email in, thank you for emailing in. I hope the uh, holiday survival guide is helpful to some degree because I think you need to look at. Too often we look at addiction one sided. We look at. And for me, it was hard because I always looked at the addict side because that was my reality. But there's so many different facets when it comes to addiction because. When you have an addict, the addict has their reality on everything that's going on. Well, the family has a completely different reality because they're not seeing things through a veil of drug abuse. And then there's the outside objective observers that are like, this whole thing is nuts. Yeah. And so, you know, I geared this survival guide to each one of those audiences um, about like what you can do this holiday season pending something comes up about a loved one or someone around that's, you know, currently addicted. Um, unfortunately, as much as I'd like to think the substance abuse problem in this country is getting better slowly, but surely it, 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 the statistics are saying it's, it's, it's still bad out there. Uh, the DEA just put out their um, 2018 statistics on the drug threat, and uh, prescription drugs are still the number one killer. Yep. Overall, there's so many prescription drug-involved uh, overdose deaths. It's insane, followed, of course, by fentanyl and synthetic opioids and things like that. But we all have to be really vigilant out there right now, and I think more now than ever – those who are not aware of the signs and symptoms of opiate intoxication and overdose need to make themselves aware of it. And you can actually go on the Narconon website, which is narcononsuncoast.org, and find a blog article that goes over how to identify those things. Great. I mean, that's great. There's so many resources on the Narconon website. It's absolutely fabulous. I think that I'm really excited about our episode today because... Yeah. One of the ways that people are getting this message out that it's a huge problem is through film. Mm -hmm. And, you know, a few months ago, we interviewed Jim Meskimen, who is a very well-known actor and impersonator, and he wrote and starred in a dramatic fictional short mm -hmm. film called Sun to Sun. And so today we have with us the filmmaker and one of the producers of a new feature-length documentary called Overdosed. And I'm super duper excited. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about the filmmaker that we're going to get on the phone. She's in Ireland, so we will Skype her in. But her name is Mary Sue Connolly. She's an Irish-born filmmaker and video editor who has worked as an editor-producer for CNN's New York Bureau and as an editor at CBS Television Distribution. During her time at CBS, Mary Sue edited numerous award-winning investigative reports, including the Exceptional Merit in Media Awards, the National Headliner Award, the Clarion Award, and the National Press Club Award. So she's quite the filmmaker. And then we have with us in the studio today, one of the producers of the film, Jim Zwears. Jim, thank you for being here. Happy to be here. And Jim is an educator. He runs an extremely successful private school and has for how many years now? I just celebrated my 16th anniversary at the school. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And I know that um, the school is great and produce, produces great artistic products since we're talking about a film today. And Jim 
Um, we'll t- when I get Mary Sue on the line, we'll talk about how Jim found Mary Sue and how they've been working together. And so let's get her on. All right. So Mary Sue, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. Oh, thank you for having me. Delighted. And Jim, we have Jim here as well. I'm, I'm super excited. So Mary Sue, tell me some of the background of your film. How did you get started? How did I get started? Well, you know, it was not something I, you know, I thought I was finished with films. I, I, you know, kind of walked away from that film world and had a daughter and was ready to live a simple life. And then we had a tragedy in our family where my nephew passed away of an overdose and he was 21 and he was in university in Morgantown, West Virginia. And he was just a beautiful, wonderful, intelligent, brilliant boy. And so this just, you know, my world turned upside down. Everybody in my family, we were just completely distraught. Um, I mean, we, my sister, his mother, um, we knew that he just had formed an addiction to pain pills while he was in university, uh, Percocets and Oxycontins. Um, So we knew that, you know, this was a bit of a struggle for him. But he was, we did not realize the extent of his addiction. We didn't realize how much it had taken a hold of his life. And we never expected that it was going to be fatal. You know, we just thought that, you know, he's going to be able to handle this. He'll come through it. He's 21. He's going through a phase. You know, we never thought that we'd lose him so young. So and this just was so tragic for me. I, 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 I was in New York City at the time and... I, I flew down to uh, Morgantown, and this was in 2016, so we're talking about almost uh, two years ago, Thanksgiving two years ago. Wow. So I flew, yeah, terrible. I flew down to, um, it's like the last two years have been a complete blur in my life. It's like time has just taken on a different meaning. Um, but uh, so when I flew down to Morgantown um, for this terribly sad event and to try and understand exactly what happened, I, I just said to myself, I need to know what's happening here. And I need, you know, for the sake of Paul and other people, Paul is my nephew's name, for the sake of him and people like him, like I, I need to know what's happening, I need to get justice, and I need to try and understand how this could happen. And then I realized that, oh my God, I was not alone. I mean, the whole state had been ravaged by addiction. Everywhere I went, I had met people who had lost, you know, their brother, you know, their sister, their child, their mother. It was everybody I met had a story similar to mine. So in one respect, I felt it was comforting to know that I wasn't alone in my suffering, you know. Um, so I felt comforted. But I, at that point in time, I wrote to everybody I knew in, in media and film and, you know, my past world um, in news. And I was like, oh, this is unbelievable. You have to get down here. This, this is a crisis. This is catastrophic. And I think that people in New York at the time and, and Los Angeles and big cities like that just really didn't understand what was happening in states like West Virginia and states that are kind of off the radar a little bit, you know, uh, they had maybe read a few news reports, but nobody knew the extent of the crisis. And uh, I, so I just started to research and I was just, well, I'm like, I have to do something about this. You know, I, I can't just go home. <laughs> right. I can't just go home and, and pretend that I haven't seen what I've seen. It was like the veil just came down, you know, in my life and, and everything. It was like I was suddenly exposed to something I never expected. And I, I didn't know that this kind of greed exists 
because that's what I found out pretty quickly, you know, is why these areas were targeted with an overdistribution of pain pills and it was just a money racket for a lot of uh, people involved in, in, you know, the pharmaceutical industry, uh, not everybody, of course, but certain certain key players, um, you know, had created this this man-made uh, epidemic and, and the death toll was rising and I just couldn't go home. I could not walk away from it. I was like, I have to do something. And I, you know, I don't, I don't write. I'm not a writer and I, I don't, I'm not a doctor. I'm not, you know, all I could do was do what I know. And that's just try and document this and show it to people and talk about it and get the word out and, and, and let more people know what's happening and, and raise awareness. So that's what prompted this film. Well, I think, that, yeah. I think that raising awareness is one of the most valuable things that you or anybody can do because, you know, Jason and I have talked about this over and over again on the podcast. Addiction is no longer the dirty homeless guy under the bridge shooting up. It's just, it's just not where it's at right now. And it's the, you know, the middle class or upper middle class young people and older people. It's, we've interviewed nurses and doctors who become addicted. It's, it's a much bigger problem than most people realize. And we have to make people aware of it. And that's what, that's what you did with your film and what you're continuing to do with getting it out there. It's Thank so yeah. it, it's so important. How did you and Jim connect up? Because Jim is a um, is a headmaster of a school here in Clearwater, and there you are in West Virginia and New York doing your thing. Yeah, well, you know that was just so great. I mean, um, I was kind of in the dark, struggling along, trying to make sense of <laughs> all this footage and how do I tell this story. And I started a Kickstarter campaign and uh, Jim, you know, chipped in, donated to my Kickstarter and then followed up with me. What are you doing? And I'd like to help you and let me see a cut. And so I, you know, I started showing him cuts of, you know, rough cuts. And, and he came back to me with just brilliant knowledge and advice and a great understanding of what needs to be done, what I needed to do. He really had the storytelling skills and he really believed in, in the message and believed in me and... It just took me out of my little world, and, and you know, I really needed that alliance and the help, you know, and I couldn't have done it without him. So I was like, Jim, please, can you come on board <laughs> as a producer? I, you know, I, I really need you. This is invaluable to the project. And he was just there to help, and I'm just so grateful for that. And Jim, what was your motivation? What got you involved? You know, um, I was on Kickstarter just because I'm a, a nerd like that, and I like to see all the new gadgets and stuff. And this kind of popped up as something that a friend of mine had, had donated money to this project. And I thought, oh, this is a really interesting. And I didn't really think a lot about it, but I could see, like, I'm mean, just, you know, looking at the website and the, the clips that were done, I thought, well, this is an interesting project. And I can see, like, a, like Mary Sue's sincerity really came through and communicated through the, the screen to me. And I was like, okay, I'll, I'll throw a few dollars at this because it seems like something worth supporting. So I did that, and then again, just followed it up, and just like she said, I just kind of got more and more involved because, um, you know, like just like Mary, Mary Sue said, she went there and she couldn't walk away. I felt very similar about this film project, where I felt like, you know, this is a this is a really good thing and something that that I felt like I could contribute to and I could help and I could help uh, Mary Sue accomplish this, and so I just kind of got involved that way. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, kudos to you as well, Mary Sue. If you looked at what you found or what you discovered is there 
I'm sure that there's a lot of things that stand out, but is there maybe one thing that kind of stands out as you went, oh my goodness, this is major? Yeah, there was one key moment for me, and it was a story that Eric Eyre from the Charleston Gazette in a, it's a brilliant newspaper, and he ended up willing, uh, winning a Pulitzer for this story, but that was, the, the floodgates opened for me then, and that story is called um, 780 Million Pain Pills, and he actually went and got the documents unsealed um, to uncover how many pills were shipped to West Virginia in, in a short period of time, and how small towns with a population of 200 people were getting you know, one million oxycodone tablets and you're, you know, so, you know, what's wrong here? <laughs> so um, that that story just, that led me to just research, 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 read everything I can, you know, try and take the onion off here and unpeel and see what the hell happened and how, how they started. Um, so, yeah, reading that story, which I read just... You know, it came out, I think, like a month after my nephew passed away around that time. So um, that was a key moment for me. Wow. Now, I haven't seen your film. I don't know. I guess we can't see it unless we go to a festival. Is that correct, Jim? Yeah, uh, we're, we're kind of uh, holding, uh, it's not broadly distributed yet, and it's not available online or anything like that. It will be, it will be hopefully soon, but as we're going through the distribution process um, and, you know, working, you know, trying to work out with the streaming services and things like this, it's not available yet. But again, like we are showing it at film festivals and, and uh, private showings and things like that, yeah. Okay, so not having seen it, I mean, I've, I've read the summary of the film. How did you run across um, one of the key characters? Is it Brie? Is that yes, how you say her name? Yes, Brie. Right, yeah. Brie. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that was really fortuitous. I was uh, down in West Virginia. Um, it was just after Christmas. Um, and I was, you know, trying to talk to people and people really were very reluctant. They were afraid, you know, they were afraid to talk to me, afraid that they would get targeted. The, the drug dealing world is kind of sinister. Um, and I was on this um, group, this uh, Facebook group, actually, for people who had lost loved ones to the epidemic. And Bree just posted something on there about her life and how... Um, Children, you know, she felt really sorry for the children that were suffering, the children of addicts, because she actually was one. So we just struck up a, a, a conversation and um, messaged each other, and and I told her, you know, I'm trying to find people to interview, I'm trying to uncover what's happening, and she was so game because she was really ready to talk about it because she felt like me, where she just had to, she was really ready to speak, and she had to just, you know, open those shutters and let the world know, and she wasn't afraid of anything. <laughs> She had gotten out of prison, and she was not, uh, you know, involved with drugs anymore. She was totally reformed. And I drove across the mountains. I, I, I was in Elkins, and I drove across the mountains in the middle of the night to meet her, thinking I was meeting this crazy, you know, felon, <laughs> drug-dealing, former drug-dealing girl. And I met this beautiful young woman who was um, so sweet and kind and, and gracious, and it was just, you know... A, crazy to imagine the life she had led and and there she was this young 27 year old girl really you know brave enough to sit down and, and ready enough to, to talk about this um 
so that's how I met Brie. And then I decided, okay, I need to tell the story through Brie, you know, because she's amazing and, and she was engaging and, and she was ready to talk and she was, you know, going to introduce me to her community and talk about her life from the perspective of a former drug dealer, convicted felon, and somebody who's also struggled with addiction. And she's also the daughter of, of an addict, you know. So she just had, had a very interesting perspective on the, on the whole epidemic. One of the things I feel, uh, you know, that Mary Sue's done a great job with the film is she's taken something that's a really a national problem throughout many states and many communities in America, and she's made it very personal. So rather than like a lot of stats and charts and things like that become very, you know, they kind of dull the mind after a while. You know, when you hear these people up front and their personal stories and their emotion, their visual, visual emotion on the screen and stuff like that, it really impinges. And it's... Uh, it's just a great way. It's a great way to present the story because the film covers the opioid uh, addiction problem from the viewpoint of the user, the dealer, um, doctors who are overprescribing painkillers, as well as the drug companies themselves that are producing these things and profiting from them. So the film covers it, but it's a very personal story too. I like that. Um, I think that it's the personal stories that resonate with other people. That's why when we you know, when we interview people on the podcast, it's all about what's your personal story, what's your personal story, because while the the basic story of addiction, you know, the guy tries the drugs or, you know, and gets addicted and then can't get off. Okay, so that's, that's, that's similar, but everybody's got their own personal story and they're all different in their own way. And I think each story resonates with other people. Yeah, and the other thing about that, you know, talking about that personal story is one thing that's happened a lot in this community, particularly that we're talking about in West Virginia, is a lot of people were, were became addicts through medical prescriptions. Right. You know, and, I, and I'm sure you guys have heard that story many times, too. But it is, it is amazing to see people who, like one of, our, one of the people in, in the film, you know, she went, she, you know, she was in a car accident, had injury, overprescribed, the doctor way overprescribed her under painkillers. And she became, you know, an addict and a drug dealer as a result of that. And it's such a tragedy, you know? Yep, it yeah. definitely is. You also mention um, in the, the summary of the film a uh, doctor. Is it Rajan Masi? Is that how you say it? Oh, Raj, yeah. Raj, okay. Raj Masi. Yeah, it's Rajan, but everyone calls him Raj. Raj Masi. Yeah, he was the doctor in Breeze Town who was... Um, running a practice and he he went to prison himself for four years um and now he he trains people with uh narcan and he's he's working in the recovery community working for the state of west virginia now um on the flip side um but he you know was pretty notorious in the area for um uh he was a heavy writer. That's the term they use. Overprescribing. <laughs> yeah. Yes, he was a heavy writer. So, uh, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of pills went through his office. Wow. And he talks on the film, like he's part of the whole, the film? Yes, he does. He talks and, you know, he, you know, has a very good understanding of, of what happened. And his, his, he's angry at the drug companies also because he feels like, you know, he wasn't trained. Um, his his knowledge of addiction literally came from you know drug reps, and when they were sending all doctors in, from that period trained in the 90s, you know, they they weren't really educated on, on opioid addiction. I mean, no one really even knew how addictive these drugs were because you know 
the drug company that put out OxyContin misled people into thinking that these these were not very addictive drugs. And, and then they also came up with a term called pseudo-addiction um, for people, you know, they're not, uh, yeah, maybe they're addicted, but it's pseudo-addiction now. It's not really addiction. So there was a lot of false representation on their part that they've admitted to and, and paid fines for. So he's, he feels bitter at them uh, for misleading him as a doctor. And, you know, as it, he also developed a dependency on pills himself. So I guess it was kind of like an out-of-control train where nobody really knew what was going to happen, you know, and the money was flowing into to the, to the higher-ups and the drug companies and the distributors, and, and then all these people are just kind of... It was a runaway train in a lot of places. Yep. No one knew what was going to happen, and now, you know, 10 years later, we're, we're paying the price pretty hard, and we know exactly what happened now. But at that point, you know, people who were involved in it, you know, just didn't really know how it was going to end and how bad these drugs actually were. This is just a reminder, you're listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. If you'd like further information on the podcast, you can go to our Facebook page by the same name. And if you'd like further information on Narconon, Call 1-877-339-3324. That's 1-877-339-3324. Yeah, but I mean, part of the problem is, I mean, for sure a lot of people on the ground didn't understand it. But at the same time, the drug companies, specifically McKesson Distribution Company, Drug Distribution Company, you know, they target marketed different communities in different areas. And that's uh, one of the... um, one of our uh, one of the other people featured in the film is a DEA agent who worked on busting busting the situation in this area, and so um, you know, but the, but also the fact like the the McKesson was target marketing certain communities, and when they were asked to take responsibility for it or anything like that, they're like, well, it wasn't our fault. There was just a lot of lot of market in these areas, and it's you know, it's just a it just says something about the community that's using all these drugs, not the, not us who are supplying the area. A lot of market in the areas. That yeah. sounds so like objectifying of a person because they literally targeted these communities based on the fact that they were more than likely to accept the medications, take them, thus getting addicted and continuing to flood money into uh, the pockets of the corporate bigwigs. And it, it turns my stomach. There was just a report that came out of West Virginia. I believe that some of these communities, there was like 270 million pills. Mm-hmm. Or something that flooded in to a county that had like seventy eight hundred people in it. Yeah, right, right. You, do you read that? Yeah. No, but I've read similar things. It, it yeah, came yeah. out to be like each person, like there's like a couple hundred pills per person. Yeah, yeah. the whole county is like, yeah, but, but the whole county is not taking the drugs. Right, it's just exactly. Because like, oh. people are coming in, they're driving in, they're getting their prescriptions and filled, they're and they're taking off, taking off somewhere else. Yeah, it, it, and the thing is, you look at West Virginia; it's very economically depressed because of the coal industry of and all that stuff like that. So it's really like, like really victimizing people who are desperate for any kind of thing in their life, you know, any kind of positive. A lot of people depend on the drug trade because that's the only, that's the job. That's where the money is. That's what the economy is based on. And that's really, uh, it's, it's again, going back to what Mary Sudrit said at the very beginning, like when she was confronted with the greed behind this, this crisis, yep. you know. Well, well, the, thing, well, the thing is also I wanted to bring this up along the same vein of what you were saying uh, with the coal industry. It's also a lot of manual laborers out there who end up getting hurt 
after years of the, on the job and then doing the daily grind, you know, a physical labor job, and then they go to the doctor and things start to deteriorate and then they get oxy. So when they say it was uh, like a target market, it, it makes sense and it's kind of disgusting all at the same time. And yeah. it's just like, it, it's unreal how they did that. And now I think another pharmaceutical company recently got in trouble for a similar thing um, with, uh, they were off-label using uh, pain medication that was supposed to only be that was actually only FDA approved to treat breakthrough pain and cancer, and they're treating it, giving it for chronic pain. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's just like un- unbelievable. Well, I think the film. Oh, yeah. Is- yeah, I think you're talking about the fentanyl patches. Insys. Yeah. Insys was one of them, definitely. That just happened. Then there was Teva Pharmaceuticals that just got in trouble oh. um, because there's right. two of their medications that are only supposed to be given. Like the FDA has only approved this for cancer patients because there's such a high risk of addiction with it. And then mm-hmm. they found out that through, you know, collecting data and, you know, doing investigations that doctors were actually being urged to mm-hmm. write for these prescriptions for chronic pain. So basically, like, one of the sales reps was like, 99% of the people in my territory were not oncologists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Right. I mean, I, I heard one memo, one memo, um, I, I won't mention the drug company, but they had a memo that was, get them high and hope they don't die. Oh, that's actual fact. And that's what they were doing. Well, I I think your film is definitely shining the light on something that needs to be visible. You know, it's interesting to me when you talk about like targeting a certain part of the population, typically it's, it's the references to like race, like maybe targeting black people or targeting Asian people, but this is like targeting a whole state in our country it's if you really cla- look at it's it. It's a whole class of people. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Whole, they're targeting a whole economic class of people because if you look at your average blue collar working class American, they're more likely going to have physical labor jobs. They're more likely going to be more willing to take something at the end of the day to take the edge off because it was a long day and they're kind of tired and all that stuff. It, it was kind of like a perfectly coordinated effort. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Mary Sue, you, Mary Sue used a term that Jason and I've never heard before. We were made, making our made heads made our head uh, scratch our heads. Pseudo addictive. What or, is that? What does that mean? Pseudo addiction. A fake addiction. Um, it it is a term that when doctors started prescribing um, oxys and they you know they noticed this guy keeps coming back. He's had you know he's been taking these now for a few months. He needs more. What's going on? And doctors started to report this to the drug reps or the drug companies. You know, what's going on here? Are these people addicted? Should we cut them off? And they uh, they coined a phrase called pseudo-addiction, which meant that, no, they're just building up a tolerance. They really need more, more pain medication. Just what? give them more. Uh, oh, God. Wow. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's... Yeah. Well, that's and not- at that point, they must have known, you know, I mean, you try and think that like they didn't know how bad this was going to get. But I mean, at that point, they just they must have known. <laughs> do, do people who are pseudo addicted have pseudo overdoses? It's like it's it's it's, it's <laughs> the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Yeah. Yes. They, you know, I would I would venture to say that they actually did know. I'm sorry. The, I don't the, like to believe that no. there are people out there that are like that, but, but it's all about the money and they but, don't care. But the thing that they were calling pseudo addiction is actually a characteristic of addiction because Correct. it's called tolerance. Yeah. You build a tolerance mm-hmm. to the drug which your body gets used to taking it, so you require a higher and higher and higher dose to get the desired effect. So that is one of the characteristics of you being addicted. You're constantly going to need a higher dose of a drug to get whatever it is you need out of that drug. Exactly. And so it's like, 
That's infuriating. Yeah, I, <laughs> no. I, I agree. So, Mary Sue, tell us what what's coming up next in terms of the film. Um, um, yeah, well, you know, we just we just showed it at a film festival in October. So, um, two film festivals, and we had a screening in West Virginia, and we were really moved by the responses from people. You know, um, it was really lovely to get it out there and show it to people and have them react to it on a, on a human and personal level. So we, we're just going to try and do more screenings and host them in as many places as we can and, and reach out to the community, and, you know, travel with it, uh, do Q&As, panel discussions, get involved with, um, Q, you know, people that are, you know, um, groups that are recovery groups or harm reduction groups and, and do some screenings and do some more film festivals and just get the message out as far as we can and as wide as we can. Well, I think I think it's huge. I mean, I, I yep. think it, yeah. Yeah, uh, if you go to overdosedfilm.com, there's uh, more information. We'll keep posting information there. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, Overdosed Film. So uh, either those sources, you can also follow follow progress. Let, uh, we'll post uh, information about screenings there. We've got another screening planned uh, early February. And like I said earlier, we're working on getting distribution so we can get out to a wider wider audience too okay and what's the next film festival you are hoping to be at or you're already scheduled at um we don't have any film festivals scheduled yet okay because we're kind of not sure how much we want to spend doing that okay it's, it's not necessarily the key to getting recognized understood so it's just one one piece of the puzzle so we're also you know working on ta- uh meeting with and talking to distributors directly and things like that fair yeah. enough Well, as we move forward and as the film is available here, there, or wherever, um, Jim, make sure you let us know so that we can announce it on the podcast because um, it, we have to get the word out about this and that's why we do the podcast. It's, you know, why we do it every week, but it's, you know, I think this film is going to go a long way towards that, especially with all of the work you guys are putting in to get it out there. Yeah, I think Mary Sue's done a great job in like in an hour and 15 minutes of taking somebody who knows nothing about this problem to being very well educated on it and feeling very strongly about it. So, I mean, from that viewpoint, the the film really accomplishes something. That's great. Yeah. Well, Mary Sue, thank you for doing the film. I'm, oh, thank you so much. <laughs> I'm sorry about your nephew. I'm sorry that that has to happen. Um, breaks my mother's heart. And um, But you've dealt with it in probably the best way possible, which is to bring shine a light on this problem and make it well known and put it out there. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you for being with us today. Okay, my pleasure. So I realized when... We were all done with this episode of the podcast that I had neglected to ask Mary Sue about any barriers that she ran into during the filming of this uh, documentary. And so I went back and I interviewed her some more, just me, and I wanted to include that in this podcast because I think it's important. So here's the rest of the interview. So I have a question for you. Um, I Obviously, you had people who helped you with the film. Did you run into opposition from anybody? 
Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, we did encounter quite a bit of opposition, actually, because when I started making this film in two years ago, in 2016, you know, people in, in, in West Virginia especially, there was shame involved, and, and they felt like somehow they had were responsible for what happened down there, that um, this was their fault, that they got flooded with these millions and millions and millions of dollars of pills and overprescription and doctors going crazy. And so it took it took a while for the people to actually realize, oh wait, we wait, we've been we've been targeted, like we're victims here. And to, you know, shake off that shame and um and understand exactly what happened to them. Um also I did also encounter opposition from um people who are still using and, and not wanting their supply to be diminished. So anyone that brings attention to this topic, you know, runs the risk of, get, you know, drug dealers go under, people get arrested, you know, the word gets out and law enforcement steps in. So there was a lot of people still in active addiction who were against us, you know, talking about this because they were afraid their drug supply was going to stop. And also, um, the doctor and, and his team of people were worried that, you know, by revealing what we were revealing was going to make them look bad. And then, you know, they were, were really kind of trying to keep some things undercover, you know, under the cover with that. Um, so I, I, I did encounter a lot of those problems, um, which, you know, now has completely changed. Now the community is embracing you know, understands exactly what's happened and, and realizes it's not their fault. And everybody at this point has been so devastated by this that they're just ready to step up and do anything they can to clean up their town. So so a lot has changed in two years. Um, yeah. Has the um, the doctor had any sort of realization in terms of his responsibility because I didn't see that so much in the film. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I still wonder myself and he's he's so charming and, and, and interesting to talk to, but um, I, I just heard stories that would just make your jaw hit the floor and you just wonder like, how could this happen and how how can he not have known about this? Um, I mean, I know that he himself was also caught up in his act of addiction, and, and I feel like his addiction to being popular and being the person that everybody went to, um, the rock star of the town, that was very much his addiction also. So did he realize, you know, just how much of an effect he was having on the community? Um, well, he would tell you no. Pardon? He would probably tell you no, he didn't realize. But, uh, I, but I don't know yeah. that I believe that. Yes, I, I, I've, I've heard a lot of people. Uh, yes, that is, I, I really want to know myself also. And I tried, I went back to him a second time, you know, just saying, look, I've heard this stuff, you know, can you please? I, I really wanted him to come and tell me, you know, and just drop, you know, drop the mask and just be real. But um, I didn't get that, that he was ready for that for some reason. He wasn't ready for that or not able to embrace the truth. And, and I'm not sure why, but um, 
that's how yeah so I went back there and and I just couldn't couldn't get him to step up and and talk directly about things that had happened and his role in them well okay now that I've seen your film I started out this interview and I had not seen it and now that I've seen it I think it needs to be seen by every government official in this country. It needs to be seen by anybody that wants to address the problem of addiction in this country. It's the it is it's horrific, really, the story in terms of how this geographical area was targeted and what the result was and um you know, really, kudos to you for making the film. Kudos to the um, <laughs> women that were in there that were willing to fully confront, you yeah. know, their own part in this um, this problem in West Virginia and take responsibility for it. And that's interesting that you say that, Joni, because there's a lot of really strong women down there on the front lines of this crisis, fighting tooth and nail to get attention to this topic. And it, it just floors me the amount of work that they're doing and giving up all their time, driving around to see people who are, you know, stuck in addiction, feeding them, helping them, driving them to rehabs. You know, it's just unbelievable what the women of West Virginia, the ones who have lost loved ones or the ones that, you know, are suffering, you know, because of their children's addiction or their parents' addiction, to see what they are doing down there. And the women that helped me with my film, you know, I, I just, it floored me. It just floored me, you know. And I, this, this film also, you know, as a woman filmmaker, and I did this film completely alone, really, with my three-year-old daughter in the backseat of the car everywhere we went because that, there was just a desperation to tell this story from all of us, from me, from, from Bree, from Cami, Jenny. Like, we just had to talk about this, you know, and it had to happen now. And it wasn't like, oh, let's wait for the grant proposal to come in and we'll get like 10 grand and get a fancy camera and a whole crew. It didn't happen like that. It was like there was an immediacy that this is going down now and we have to document this at, right now and talk about this. And it was a, a way for me in my suffering. It was a way for me to heal also just by I had to find out what the hell was happening. You know, there's no way I could go on without knowing. So it became just these strong women, you know, trying to make sense of this on the front lines of this epidemic with absolutely no support from anyone, you know, just fighting kind of in your corner against the world because I didn't see any activists down there. You know, I didn't see, I, I met one brilliant journalist from The Guardian who was down there, who's written a book that's brilliant. Um, but otherwise, you know, there's no lawyers, there's no, you know, advocates for anyone. Kids are thrown in jail for, you know, hardly anything and their life is over and they get just caught in this trap of hopelessness. Um, so, you know, that's what's been happening. And I just really wish that we could get more resources down to rural communities and people that are just cut off and get groups and organizers, people to run workshops, education, you know, meditation, yeah. you know, yeah. just to just to help these communities that are just so disabled and crippled right now because of this. Yeah. 
Well, I don't know exactly who listens to this podcast. I know we've got something like 50,000 downloads. And so I know we have people definitely all over the U.S. and all over the world. But anything we can do to, you know, promote the film, promote this podcast, continue to get the word out about what you you are doing, we will do because that's why we do this podcast because it has to be done. It has to be said. It has to be confronted. And I, so you're my hero for doing this film. You really are because I know you didn't get rich off of it. Okay. (laughs) I know that. Okay. You don't have to show me your finances. I know it. I did not. It was, it was getting poor off of it, but you know, it's okay. (laughs) No, I know that. I know that's why you did it. And I, I admire you. I respect you. I, um, I, anything we can do to help, we will we will do in terms of promoting this. And um, I can't thank you enough for just being interested and listening and giving me a platform to talk about this. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Well, definitely. Thank you to you. <laughs> Thanks, Joni. That's amazing. You're welcome. All right. <laughs> Jim, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And thank you for introducing us to Mary Sue. And... Thank you for what you're doing with the film. I mean, so happy to be here. And, um, you know, I'll keep you updated as things go along. And um, love your podcast. Thanks, thanks for what you're doing, too. Th- well, thanks. You know, it's, it's interesting to me. I don't know if you have anybody in your family that... <clears throat> excuse me. This is not emotion. This yeah. is a catch in my throat. I don't know if you have anybody in your family that died from addiction. I don't. But I'm passionate about it because I don't want somebody to lose a nephew or a son. I just, I don't want that. And it's, it's such a created situation in this country. And I just think we have to get the word out more and more about it. So yeah, you're coming from the same place I am. And I really appreciate it. It's just, yeah, yeah. no, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I was saying before when we were, weren't recording, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, no, I think these independent films are hugely important because they're educational for the people out there. They have no reality on addiction whatsoever, because there are certain people that I talk to about addiction and they have like I'm, I'm looking at like a blank stare because they're like they don't they don't understand it when they're like well you know i really don't have much understanding of addictions i've never gone through it it's just like i i recently had someone ask me to explain addiction like in a very simplistic way and i said well imagine compulsively kind of out of your uh, your uh, control you compulsively consume a substance on a daily basis because you're convinced that you can only survive through taking the thing that's killing you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is with the, it, it, it's so different than, you know, 20, 30 years ago is we now have like drugs that have been engineered in very high tech labs with billions of dollars of research. It's not like some guy in his, you know, growing pot in his backyard. Something no. like, these are things that are with the, the, the best science. And it's, a, and it's an example of where science has outstripped ethics. Totally. You know, the yep. technology is, is more advanced than the ethics to regulate that technology. That's true. That's very true. Our interview last week was a nurse and she, she got addicted to fentanyl. Yeah, I, And I, she said fentanyl, yeah is so addictive. It is so addictive. It is so addictive. She had done something prior to that. I can't remember what it was, but she said, you know, the minute I started on fentanyl, all bets were off. She said, it is so addictive. So you have this newly created drug that is ostensibly for end-of-life pain and, you know, that type of thing. It was only for end-of-life pain. Yeah, well, it's definitely gotten out there. But that's the thing. 
there's never been an opioid medication that has not gotten diverted onto the streets. Yeah. I don't, I can't name it's one. It's true. That was that was developed with. Let's say, okay, fine. It's developed for a, a usable cause in a hospital or in a, or in a surgery center or something like that. We're only going to use it here. But there's so many drugs that people on the streets use or have used or can get their hands on that were never, ever, ever supposed to be diverted away from healthcare settings, but they all have. And I cannot figure out one that hasn't. And well, that, but also if you look at OxyContin, you look at the fact that Purdue Pharma, and I will name them, I, yeah, sure, I don't care, course. I'll name them every day of the week, uh, we came <laughs> out and said it was not addictive, which is such a bald-faced yeah. lie. I mean, yeah. it, unbelievable, you know, that we they have could this, do that. We have this great clip in, in the film of a, of a, like, Purdue Pharma OxyContin promotional video where there's where the guys up there saying this drug is great it should be used much more than it is you right now it's our best pain medicine <laughs> you know just really selling the hell out of it and and uh yeah and the thing is you will not win if you have a if you have a drug addiction to one of these super drugs like this you will not just walk away from it you're not just going to put down the pill and walk away and be like oh tomorrow will be a fresh day yeah. you without help you are not going to get away from that and you it's don't have true. the ability to do that no, no. because what that that's that's like some false information that people have is that well why can't you just stop why can't, yeah. he needs to get a job and just get his stuff together or she just needs to you know just put it down and grow up and all this stuff it's no you don't understand once you're at that point you lack the ability to stop unless something intervenes which yeah. is like you go to treatment. Or you yeah. have an intervention and go to treatment. Someone has to stop you, remove you from your environment, put you somewhere else and say, we're going to clean you up. Yeah. And this is how we're going to do it because otherwise it's not going to happen. Yeah, yeah. no, the chemistry is too strong. Mm-mm. Yeah, it's yeah. way too strong. This is so scary though when you look at the fact that the, the whole state of West Virginia was actually targeted yeah. with these pain pills. You've and essentially it's, enslaved that population to these drugs. It's so evil yeah. and it... I, you know, kudos to Mary Sue and for confronting that, and you yeah. for helping her because, yeah, yeah it's that's major. That's yeah, that's really. just that's, a major that's... whole aspect to this yeah. addiction problem that I think and, has got to be known and, and well known. And and, and 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 it's not like Mary Sue didn't have to like deal with some scary dudes while she was there too. And I meant to ask her know? that question. Oh, I didn't, and I yeah. forgot to ask her that question because yeah. I'm sure that you know there are people who, yeah definitely were did not want her to get the word out about absolutely this. and there's stuff that's you know not in the film because of that reason because yeah. we're concerned about Same lives thing. that are still there in west stuff. virginia yeah. yeah wow that's unreal yeah. that's scary yeah. yeah that's scary well once again thank you for being with us today my pleasure thanks jason we'll we'll do it again next week again always and then um yeah, we got we've got a mother and a daughter that we're going to talk to I'm next week. I'm so excited for that. Yep, I can't even tell you. The daughter went through Narconon, and it's her and her mom. So we'll interview them next week, and then Thanksgiving, and then we have an interview with a very interesting guy who's a Hollywood actor and went down that road and is now back. You know, very so cool. we'll keep telling the story. Keep coming back. We'll talk again next week. Bye. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, call 877-339-3324 or visit www.narcononsuncoast.org. Narconon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard. 